Father, first I want to lift up to you, Trish, that you would comfort her, you'd bring the right people at the right time, you would help her to be strong when necessary, and help her to grieve when necessary. The same thing with the Kelly family, Lord, and Musaka, his wife, and their sons. I I pray that you would give them wisdom, uh, the funeral coming up in just a little while. I, I would ask, Lord, that you would just have your hand upon that family. And also for us this morning, I I pray that you would teach us, help us to recognize how wonderful it is to be under your grace and mercy as I just prayed, Lord, that you don't judge us according to our sins, that as we turn to you, your word says you are faithful and just to forgive us. I thank you that we can go to you. And Father, we all recognize not one of us is perfect, but Lord, help us to walk in the ways, the newness of life the calling that you have called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, talked about the degenerate, who they are and how to spot them. And we're going to get into the generate, or those who are generated, who have been given new life. Matthew 7.15, as we read before, said, watch out for false prophets, those who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, are ferocious wolves. And of course, that dealt with heretics, apostates, deceivers. There could be false prophets, that type of thing. And they would introduce destructive heresies inside the church. I gave you a list of those heresies, not calling sin, sin, double predestination. I went through that. The Arian heresy, docetism, hell is not real, total annihilation. It's just like going to sleep if you don't go to heaven and never dreaming. That's not true. These are all heresies. Universalism, that everyone gets saved. A second chance, the cults believe that, that you're resurrected and God gives you a second chance. We only get one chance, and it's in this life, to choose Jesus or not. The idea of being slain in the Spirit, being out of control when the workings of the Spirit are taking place, that is a heresy as well. The self-esteem heresy that went through the church in the 80s, saying that you're good and you deserve to be treated well and... Scripture says that we are fallen and we are even a danger to ourselves. We are harmful to ourselves. The health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine, the many ways to God, all of these things have been heresies that have come into the church. And they are perpetrated in the church by the false teachers, the prophets, and the heretics. The outward appearance of these people, which says we'll know them by their fruit, and the fruit can be a grumbler, a fault finder, one who complains excessively. It could be men who divide, women who divide. The gossips inside the church, those types of people mean harm because they're not submissive to God and what he says. And then he goes on in verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my father. And so he pointed out that there are those who are inside God's kingdom, so to speak, or the church, that would be for us. There will be those inside the church that they look like they're believers, but they're not believers. And he prophesied, there were those who prophesied that were false prophets. For instance, Caiaphas. There's no way that I believe that Caiaphas was saved according to the scriptures, but he prophesied. And Balaam in the Old Testament was a prophet for hire. And he prophesied in accordance with the will of God. And some people will debate, well, maybe he just went astray. Some people say he's a false prophet. We don't know. But God can use donkeys to speak. And so if he wants to use an individual that will bring a word from him that is not saved, he can easily do it. And so he has given us the task of recognizing those who mean harm to the body of Christ. And, of course, if somebody is in the church... And they are not saved. That brings up the question, well, how do we even know that we are saved? Even those who believe and have no ill intent for somebody else. Well, if we confess and believe, Romans 10, 9 and 10, and Acts chapter 16, verse 30, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. That's how we get saved. We can know that based on God's word. If we abide and remain, if we continue in his ways, if If we decide we're going to go to church and then we say, I'm not going to, I still believe. Or have you heard the phrase, I am spiritual but not religious? Have you heard that phrase? That is a falsehood. 
religion pure and undefiled is the ministering to widows and orphans in their affliction. That's what God says religion is. The relationship is what we have with each other and with God. If we are in a relationship with God, we are in fellowship with the saints and we are in fellowship with God. We abide and we remain. We don't say... I'm going to do my own thing. Oh, I'm against the organized church. I've heard that a lot. I'm just against organized religion. Well, you know, God organized the Christian religion. And he knew it would have all these faults and all these problems. And he'd get pastors who were fallen as well as elders who were fallen and deacon and deaconesses that are fallen and teachers that are fallen. He would get everybody who was fallen and put them in positions of authority to teach and build up the body of Christ, not lording it over them. And yet, what do we do? We say, well, I'm not going to, or some, they say, I'm not going to get involved in the church. There's so much corruption. Yeah, you know what that is, hypocrisy. We are corrupt to the very core, and God says, I'm still going to save you. And when we realize that, we turn to God and we say, forgive me, God, First John 1, 9, and he forgives us. And so we abide and remain. A righteous man falls seven times and seven times gets back up. Also, it says, we keep his commands. The false prophets would not keep the commands. The heretics would not keep the commands. The false teachers would not keep their commands. The Jews in the time of Jesus put heavy burdens on people's shoulders, but they were not willing to lift a finger themselves. And so we we can see and recognize those in the body of Christ who would cause harm. Now, in the body of Christ, believers and unbelievers that may be there both think that they're going to heaven, but we're supposed to examine ourselves to see if, in fact, we're in the faith. Now, there's not one believer that is without sin, as I just said, but there's a difference between animal instinct, giving in to a particular sin or desire or temptation, and those who are degenerate and mean harm. Now, to give you an example of that, it, it, sometimes it's hard inside the church to come up with examples of those who may be degenerate inside the body of Christ. There can be those in the body of Christ, men that would come in and take advantage of women or women that would come in and take advantage of men, that, that can happen inside the church. And that would be de- degeneracy is what that would be. But it, to give you a more forceful idea of who that might be, all you have to do is look to Washington. In Washington, there are people that mean harm to others. Also in the media, there are those in the media that mean harm to others. And I'm not separating out liberal conservative uh, biases in their Republican, Democrat, Green Party, peace and freedom, whatever it might be, libertarian. Those who get in a position of authority are tempted with this idea of degeneracy. And the best thing to do is just serve and not desire the power. If it's not yours and you recognize that, that's great. But you operate in the responsibilities that you have. And, and so that helps us to figure out, well, Lord, am I in the faith? Am I not in the faith? And we can know that we are in the faith. If we doubt, maybe we've lost our salvation. We've gone through these verses before I did last week. Second Corinthians 5.5, 5, he's given us his spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing the things which are to come. And so that guarantee is based on the guarantee of Jesus, not the guarantee of Sears or Kmart or Blockbuster Video or Hollywood Video? What if Hollywood Video said, you have videos for life? What kind of guarantee is that? That's no guarantee at all. They've gone by the wayside. Or what, what was um, the Mama Bell? You know, it's no longer existing, right? All of these, com- IBM, you know, this being broken up and dished up. And uh, these things that happen like that, there's no guarantee. But Jesus is around forever. And he says, I've given you a, a, a guarantee, my spirit, as a deposit. And so we can trust in that. So if we hold to those things, if we seek not our own good, but the good of others and the good of Christ, hey, You're right in there, and you have great assurance of your faith. So the regenerate, verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Now, what is he talking? Is he talking about housing? Is he talking about rocks going down to the bedrock and building 
an actual house? He's not. This is a metaphor here. And so we got to figure out, well, what is he talking about? He gives us a clue. Therefore, everyone who hears these words, what words? What is this section of scripture we've been going over? It's the Sermon on the Mount. So if you go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a hillside, he sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, and he gave them this list of the Beatitudes, which are there. Well, he gave them much more. We're just now coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, was the Sermon on the Mount just these chapters that we have? Maybe was it a little more? We don't know for sure, but we have enough to give us direction of what these words are. I'm going to recall for you what he told everybody. Be meek and merciful. Endure persecution. Be salt and light. Avoid anger, for it's like murder. Settle matters quickly with your adversary before going to court. Do not commit adultery and do not divorce. Avoid oath-taking, praying, and giving in public to be seen by others. Help the poor, pray, give, and fast in secret. Do not be demanding of retribution when we are wronged, and be generous. Do not worry or be anxious, but trust God. Store up treasure in heaven and not on earth. Judge others the way you would like to be judged. Ask God anything according to his will, and believe that you will receive it. And remember... It is the narrow path that leads to God. All of these things he told us in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what he's referring to when he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The house is our life, our lives. We're building our lives, whatever they are. You know, you, you grow up and you have your upbringing inside your parents' household. Uh, you can talk about a household. It's not a dwelling, but it is the family unit which is together. So we're building a house, our lives, and you're building it on the rock. The rock is who? Or what? Yeah, it's Jesus. That's who the rock is. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 says, and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Christ accompanied the Jews in the wilderness. And if you remember the stone that Moses was supposed to speak to and water would flow out from it, but he hit it twice, he struck the rock twice, and because of that he didn't enter the promised land. But it tells us in that verse that Jesus is the rock. So if we take our life following the words in the Sermon of the Mount, we are building on Jesus Christ, the rock, and we will be stable. We will not be unstable. Verse 25 says, the rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house. Now, is it literal rain? No. Are the streams rising? You know, this is in North Carolina and South Carolina right now. And we'll see tons of destruction of the homes that are there and the businesses. Just They said whole communities can be wiped out because of the floods that come in well these storms that would come would be the trials the tribulations the temptations that would be there if we're on the rock we are stable we will not be taken away uh, one house when we went back to hurricane katrina it was built in bay st louis it was built by an architect there were no houses around him and it was a community just like in lakeside here but there were no houses left except for the architect's house. We went into the architect's house. He invited us over. He came to the tent where we were serving food and three times a day and we'd go out work crews. And when we went to his house, we noticed right away his house was different than all the other houses. He had these large cement columns made out of column form, if you know what that is, big tubes that you fill full of concrete and that went into the ground at least five feet. It may have been more. And then it rose above the ground at least five feet. So you had to go up concrete steps to get a concrete foundation that had concrete pillars going into the ground. His first floor was completely flooded almost all the way up to the ceiling. And they stayed in the second floor when Hurricane Katrina came. That was the only house that survived. And we got to walk through it. He invited us in, and, and we saw what he did, but no other house survived. He was the only one that built on the rock. The rest of the houses that we checked on there, they would have foundations of brick, 
they would stack bricks. You know, they would they would do the, the herringbone, I think, pattern. They would take two, put them this way, two, put them that way, two, put them this way. And sometimes they were mortared, sometimes they weren't. And then they'd put the whole two-story house on a bunch of those. And then when the water would get saturated, the house would sink. And you would go up to the house and you'd look at it and it'd be this house going like this and it it would slope like that. And it's because of the foundation and they have advertisements on the radio. The foundation companies, when we just went back to uh, Louisiana, these foundation companies were constantly on the, on the radio saying, we'll come and fix your foundation and guarantee it. And it's because they're just set on these blocks on the dirt and it just shifts. And that's what we do if we build our lives on what the world has to offer, the hope of the world. The hope of the world is, for instance, get an education, get married, just want to have kids. I I remember going through this in the church when I was younger. I remember uh, we had this hand signal. I think I've showed it to some of you. We had this hand signal, and we kind of joked about it, all of us single guys that were in the church at that time at Horizon. It was, back then it was Calvary Chapel, San Diego. We'd greet each other and go, hey, brother. You know what that is? That's the ring finger, right? Bachelor to the rapture, man. That's what we'd say to each other. We'd just be hanging in there, you know, and then, and then we started wanting to get married, you know, and so we'd find a wife and... That was good. We desired that. And then we would all be worried about the rapture happening. And we'd say, well, Lord, just let me get a house. Let me get the wife. Let me have the kids. And if I have the kids, everything will be good. You can take me then. But just wait until I have that. And then it becomes the health. Do I have my health? I have all this other stuff. Do I have my health? And I have my career. I'm a retirement nest egg and everything. Okay, Lord, I'm ready. But you know, I want to experience retirement a little bit. So if you just give me a little bit of time or retirement, maybe another 20 years or so, it'll all be good. And that's what the world has to offer. What does the Bible say about getting married? You're going to have trouble. And we're still, I want to get married. And you're going to have trouble. You want to have kids? Oh, kids are, you know, blessed is the man whose quiver is full. You know, those are arrows. And those arrows will stab you and they'll hurt you. And, you know, the Bible talks about a wayward child and it's grief to the parents. And, yeah, that's, and you want a home. Really? Have you ever seen the movie The Money Pit? It just, you just pour that money into the house and it just, it just keeps going. Same thing with a car. You get a nice car. My pride and joy and it's in the garage and then the engine dies and you gotta spend money on that. And then your health starts to go different things. You know, I've noticed as I get older, I'm getting barnacles. Have you noticed those of us who are getting older? Maybe, maybe I'm the only one, but I get the, I, I look, I go, what is that thing? You know, and it just kind of grows and your health starts to decline and hair where you never thought you'd have hair except where you want it, you know, and all of these things just come about and that's what the world has to offer and the world says if you just have these things, it'll be good. So you spend, we spend our whole lives building on that foundation which the Lord calls sand because it all washes away. We take nothing with us. And that's the way of the world. You know, the the biggest things that the world gets involved in, what are the most exciting things that people of the world can do that is supposed to bring fulfillment? Now, some of those things which are out there, like you take vacations. Woohoo! You know, you get to go somewhere, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, but it ends and you got to come back to reality. You get a fifth wheel or a motorhome, and guess what happens to it? It breaks down and you got to fix it. And the things are expensive to replace that. And what well, you go to the big concert, Paul McCartney's coming to town. Did you hear that? That will be the fulfillment of a lifetime. He comes, 74, wonderful, great, it's over. Now what? There's nothing that remains that satisfies. Therefore, we should not build upon the sand. We build upon the rock and we follow his words, which means we're building on the rock. If we forsake those words, we're building on the sand. 
Verse 28 says, when Jesus had finished these saying, or saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And the reason this was said is because the rabbis, the teachers at the time, they would refer to past rabbis, past writings, past oral traditions. And they'd say, well, you know, Rabbi Cohen used to say, and that's how they would appeal to give uh, appeal to authority to give um, weight to their messages where Jesus comes in and he speaks for himself. Well, go figure. He's God in human form. And so he's speaking with authority and the people were amazed. Now that word amazed, imagine opening your eyes as wide as you can, where you see the complete iris. You know, most of the time when you look at somebody's eye, the iris is kind of cut a little bit with the eyelid but open your eyes drop your mouth your jaw and look straight forward that's amazed they're listening to jesus and they're amazed and not only that you know you should try that do that for me open your eyes open your mouth now turn to the person next to you (laughs) that's what they were doing in the message they're going They were amazed at the way that he taught. Especially, remember, the whole context of the Sermon on the Mount? His disciples came to him and he sat down, but he saw the large crowd. And remember, I told you the context. So he's teaching his disciples. Who's in the background? The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and the crowds, the thousands who are out there. So there were multitudes of people out there. And as he's teaching them, you know, I kind of wonder... Was he teaching them in such a way where everybody could hear, where he's speaking loudly? Or was it a supernatural thing where they all understood? Or was he just speaking to his disciples and they really couldn't catch anything? And I can tell you this, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees would have made their way right behind the disciples to hear what Jesus had to say. And everybody else would have submitted to that because they were the ones that were making the judge. Like, is this guy a prophet? Is he not a prophet? And who is he? And, of course, they came to hate Jesus because of what he said. Now, chapter 5, 6, and 7 is a parenthetical thought. It is this message that has been delivered to us. Because in Matthew chapter 4, it says Jesus went, in verse 23, it says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those who had seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. And so that is what was taking place in the larger context of the Sermon of the Mount. And Matthew, via the Holy Spirit, thought it would be best that we get that particular message. How many times did he sit down and teach the people? Every opportunity he got. We just got one of those. We have one of those sermons that he delivered. It's the longest one in the New Testament, longest one in the Gospels. This is where Jesus just teaches without any interruption whatsoever. Now, from here, Jesus decides after he is talking, after the lineup in Matthew, after we get the Beatitudes and all the words, he wants to establish his word. Now, if you know anything about Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the way God establishes his word, or if he wants to do a new work, is by miracles. What we're going to see from this point on in chapters 8 and 9, some say there's 10 miracles, 12 people get healed, a couple get healed at the same time. But as Jesus is doing this, they're, they're all lined up, and there's one miracle in the middle of there where it's on the Sea of Galilee, and we'll be, we'll be getting to that. But these miracles take place in order that the Pharisees would understand who he was. And the first miracle that is recorded there is one that he tells the person who gets healed, now go show yourself to the priest. Now, why would he tell him to do that? And he gives him a stern warning. Don't tell anybody. Of course, that would be very difficult to do. Like, you know, the leper who gets healed. Don't tell anybody. Like, 
right. Are you serious? And, and so he's going down. He has to offer the offering. And I'll read that in a second. But he has to offer the offering to the priest. And of course, the priest would be there and they'd say, oh, they're probably keeping records. Oh, and what is your offering today? And the people would write it down who are at the temple. Okay, this is your offering. And, and what is this uh, sin offering for? And the guy says, I was healed of leprosy. You know what would have caused the person who was writing that down to do? That same word amazed would have been enforced right then. The guy would have said, what? You were healed of what? Do you know why he would have said that? There is no recorded example of anybody being healed of leprosy for 500, somewhere between 550 and 580 years. No one had been healed of leprosy. The first miracle that is done that is recorded for us, that he's told to go to the temple and the chief priest, was leprosy. Do you think it's unusual that somebody gets healed of leprosy when it hadn't happened in almost 600 years? Yes, that's a big deal. And so these miracles that were taking place were meant to be taken back to the temple to show the priest who was going on so they would have no excuse and what do you think they would have done now i don't want to read too much into the scripture but what do you think they would have done if a leper shows up completely cleansed and when jesus healed i'm sure he did it thoroughly his skin was probably like a baby's skin now i don't know when the last time was you held a baby and you get that feeling, I just want to eat you up. You know, and you, you put the lips on the neck type of thing. And the skin is so smooth. And the arms are just as smooth as can be. And that guy shows up. What do you think the chief priest would have done at that point? Who did this? Who? Well, Jesus of Nazareth up in the area of Galilee, that district up there. He healed me. And, you know, well, I'm here to offer the offering. They would have said, all right out of the pool hey, guys go up to galilee and check this out is what they would have been saying now again i don't want to read too much into that but they would have established whether or not this was a bona fide miracle they couldn't have somebody just a rogue pastor or priest or rabbi who would be out there just performing these miracles without checking it out because they were the ones who were in authority and remember they came to jesus by what authority do you do these miracles Remember that argument that they went through? So you can kind of fill in the lines a little bit. That's not in Scripture, but you can kind of see what was going on. Now, what kind of healings took place? You had the leper who was healed. You had the servant of the centurion who was paralyzed. Peter's mother-in-law, the demon-possessed, and the sick got healed. Jesus calmed the storm right in the middle of that. Two demon-possessed men at the Gadarenes, they were healed. And a paralytic, Jairus' daughter, the woman with the issue of blood, two blind men, and a man who was demon-possessed and mute. Those were the ones, the people who got healed, 12 in all. And they're all back-to-back when it comes to the lineup in Matthew. Remember how Matthew started out? It started out with the genealogy. Then it went up to the baptism and John the Baptist, and then it goes on to the Beatitudes. And from the Beatitudes, we get the teaching of Jesus. We understand the context that's going on. He, it's telling us his ministry from beginning all the way to the end when we get to the end of Matthew. But right here, it's a critical point. This establishes who he is. Now, I can tell you if somebody went in and cleared out Children's Hospital today, there would be a mad search like no other to find out who that person was. And they would take that person and they would fly him around the country and or her around the country to clear out all of these hospitals. And that would truly be a miracle. But there would be corruption right next to that because that is pure power that comes from God. And I think that's partially why God doesn't heal like that all the time is because we are so corrupt people would fall into corruption i can remember a like a 70s movie where a guy got this power to heal and he ended up getting corrupted by that power and so the lord uses these for special events these big ones raising from the dead that type of thing just to establish what his word is and he only does it according to his will not at every whim so going on Jesus does these miracles and it's recorded for us in the book of John chapter 10 verse 38 so that the people might believe it specifically says that but if I do it even though you do not believe me believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father so that's the reason 
He did the miracles. Now, going on chapter 8, we're ending the Sermon on the Mount and going on to the miracles. The first one here, verse 1. When he came down from the mountainsides, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, he was cured of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So see, he tells them, don't say anything and go to the priest. Now, what offering did he have to offer? Well, the person that had the leprosy in Leviticus chapter 14, beginning in verse 4, I'm just going to read it to you. If a person has been healed of an infectious skin disease, the priest shall order two live clean birds and some cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop be brought for one to be cleansed. Then the priest shall order that the one of the birds be killed over fresh water in a clay pot. He is then to take the live bird and dip it together with the cedar wool, the scarlet yarn, and the hyssop into the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. Now, that's a whole Bible study in itself. Why hyssop? Why scarlet yarn? Why the cedar wood? All of these things. I'm not going to go into that right now. Verse 10 says, And on the eighth day he must bring two male lambs and one ewe lamb, a year old, each without defect, along with three-tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with oil, and a grain offering, and one log of oil. And, And so these offerings had to be made, and each one of those elements means something. And it's a wonderful Bible study to get into that, but that's what this guy would have had to have done. They were probably running around and they were saying, hey, you know, get some scarlet yarn and some hyssop and cedar wood. Yeah, we got some cedar wood around here, right? Because they hadn't done this particular infectious disease probably for a while. Maybe they had it in there. I don't know, in the storehouses in the the temple. But it was something that was unusual. And there were probably other priests coming around going, what's going on, man? What kind of, oh, wow, this is, a guy's healed of leprosy. Oh, do you know about this? And they would have been talking all around about this miracle. And of course, if they would have gone up there, all these other miracles are taking place. And of course, there were already Pharisees and Sadducees up there. They were witnessing these things. And when the other Pharisees and Sadducees and some of the leaders came up, they were saying, man, yeah, it really happened. No, really, it happened. Who is this guy anyhow? And who told him he could do that? And you could just see what was going on at that time. Of course, like I said, they came to hate him. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, here we have the centurion and his servant. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a certain centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. So he had a bad accident of some kind. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have one or to have you come under my roof. But just say the word, my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done just as you have believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. Now there is some conflict about this particular account. Some believe it wasn't the centurion that came at all. It was another servant of him, of his, that came and he interceded to Jesus. And it's just as if the centurion was there. I don't have a problem with that. Another gospel shows it a little differently. And it's probably possible. So don't get confused by somebody saying, well, see, it didn't happen here. There's a, a conflict over in this other gospel. Don't worry about that. The person that went in the stead of another was considered the same as the person who would go. And so that's why it's written in this particular fashion. But then we have the servant, we have those selected for the feast, the subject of the kingdom, the leaders of the Jews, the ones who would not be allowed in, that would, they would be thrown outside, and the one who interceded. We have all of those players there, and we can dissect that a little bit, but what I want to focus on right now 
is Jesus was astonished. That's kind of like amazed. Remember? Open the eyes, drop the jaw, and go, no way! Like that. He probably, now, if I try to put myself in the situation when I'm thinking about this. Astonished is a superlative word. If you say surprised, wow, ah, bless my buttons. You know, something like that. You're surprised. But astonished is, no way. Ah, I go, oh, that would have been Jesus. Now, Jesus is God, right? Does anything take God by surprise? No, wait, Jesus is God, and he was astonished. How is that possible? Now, I talked with this about this with the women when we had our date night together. I, I, I talked about it with them, but I want to make sure the whole body understands kind of what's going on here. Now, there's some conflicts in the way that this is perceived, but I, I need to give a little bit of history and some background for this. The question is, Jesus was astonished, and he's God, and God is never surprised. God always knows. He knows everything. He is omniscient. And I want to tell you from the onset, Jesus is God in human form. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Logos in John chapter 1, verse 1. He is also, uh, Romans 9, 5 says, For theirs are the patriarchs, from whom is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Titus 2.13, While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. First John 5.20, He is the true God and eternal life. We have Colossians. Twice in Colossians, we are told He is the exact representation of God. If it's exact, it's the same. So there's no question He is God in human form. The docetism that was out there, the Arian heresy that he was neither God nor he, was he a human being, those are all heresies. He is both God 100% and man 100%, and those two natures do not mix. That's according to the scriptures. The cults would deny that he is, quote-unquote, the Almighty, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Scripture declares that he is. If you went to Isaiah chapter 44, 6, he is the first and the last. If you go to Revelation chapter 22, verses 13 through 16, he says he's the first and the last. And he goes on to say in verse 16, I, Jesus. So he clearly denunciates, or he clearly, not denunciates, he, he clearly explains, he is explicit, that he is, in fact, God. And he does not have a beginning, and he does not have an end, he just took on the human nature. So am I clear on that? He is God in human form. But, does God ever grieve? If you knew what was taking place, would you have a reason to grieve? If you knew the plan? of everything does God ever change his mind does he ever relent is God ever surprised is he ever amazed is God ever taken off guard like oh didn't see that coming does God ever do that what about is God man that he would act like this well Jesus is in fact man was there ever a time where Jesus didn't know something yes and we'll get to that. But he's God, which means he's omniscient. He knows everything. Because scripture clearly declares that he is the second person of the Trinity. No question about it. Was Jesus ever troubled? Not worried, but oh, oh, I'm so disturbed on the inside. I, I know what lies ahead. But if you know the outcome, why would you be troubled if you know the outcome? See, all these questions, and I think sometimes people avoid these questions and they don't know how to answer those who would say, ah, there's conflicts in the Bible, and there's contradictions. Jesus didn't know something, I thought he was God. And we need to have a reason for the hope that lies within to be able to give an answer to everyone who asks. And so what do we say to them when they say, Jesus wasn't God? See, the Jehovah Witnesses will tell you that. He's not God, he didn't know something. Well, they are correct. That's what scripture says. And even those who would say, 
Well, you know, Jesus didn't know the time of his return. But he knows now. Really? Does the book of Hebrews say Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever? So the way that Jesus was, the exact representation of the Father here on earth, did he change? Did something change when he went to heaven? Some people say, well, you know, he just divested himself. He didn't take advantage of his glory and all the attributes of that glory. He kind of put them to the side. See, I would disagree with that. He was still 100% God when he was here. So how do we reconcile those two things? Was he omniscient when he was here? Yes, I believe he was. Was he all-powerful? Yes, I believe he was. Was he everywhere present? Well, some people say, no, he had a body. He was in one place. No, he was everywhere present too. Otherwise, he would not be God. How do you reconcile that stuff? I thought you'd never ask. Let's go on. When it gets to Scripture... There are several places where it spells out those hypotheticals, which are not hypotheticals, that God experienced. For instance, Genesis 6, 6, the whole entire race, the population of the earth was destroyed. And it said the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth. If he knew what he was going to do and he was grieved because of it and he knew the outcome why would he be grieved by the way grief is something that's an attribute of god that he gives to us that's part of him we are created in his image this idea of grieve means to sigh or breathe strongly where you go oh yeah he was kind of upset you know that he had made humankind Also, it talks about, in Exodus chapter 32, the Egyptians, it says, and I'm going to read this from verse 12 to verse 14. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains, to wipe them off the face of the earth, to turn your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people? Of course, an intercession is going on here. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by yourself, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented. It changed his mind. It did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Doesn't scripture say God doesn't change his mind? It does. Appears to be a conflict right here. First Samuel chapter 15 verse 11. This is God speaking. I am grieved that I had made Saul king. For us, it'd be like, why did I do that? That's, how does God do that? Say, why did I do that? Does he not know what he did and what it's going to result in? Yes, he does. So how is this happening? First Chronicles chapter 21 verse 15. It also says there that the Lord saw it and was grieved as when the angel of the Lord went in to destroy Jerusalem. He was grieved. God was grieved about this. Well, Malachi 3 6 says, I the Lord do not change. So he does not change like shifting shadows, that type of thing. First Samuel 15 29 says, He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. For he is not a man that he should change his mind. (laughs) Okay, that's it. I don't have an answer. Next week we'll come back. Just kidding. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So I've given you three verses. That God does not change, doesn't change his mind. He's not like a man. How is he astonished? How is he taken by surprise? Uh, I'm going to give you another one. Numbers 23.19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. So there you go. Now, in... Jonah chapter 3, one more verse, verse 10. When God saw that he did not, or, uh, excuse me, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Now that gives us a little bit of a clue. 
there are decrees that God makes where he says, I'm not changing my mind. And then there's a conditional clause. If they don't repent, I'm going to bring this disaster upon them. So you have to determine whether or not he's speaking conditionally when he makes a decree because he doesn't change his mind when it comes to something that he decrees, kind of like the Pope ex cathedra. It is what it is. It stands. It's not changing that type of thing. Or maybe another Pope will change it. He speaks as if it were scripture or the Pope does. Well, God has a way of speaking like that too. I'm not changing my mind. For instance, is Jesus Christ coming back and is he going to change his mind about coming back? The answer is no, he's not changing his mind. He promised to save us. Is he going to go back on that and say, no, I'm not saving you? No, he doesn't change his mind. Those are declarative statements. When he says that, I will save you. He's not changing his mind. He's not like shifting shadows. Now, there's a couple of ways to look at this. He speaks in a way that we can understand as human beings. Anthropomorphism, or some people call it anthropopathism. It's where God is speaking in terms that we can understand because God is so far above us, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that we just won't be able to grasp. Even Peter said that of Paul's writings, ignorant and unstable people, they abuse and misinterpret the writings of Paul, which were scripture even at that time. And so when we receive our salvation, God doesn't change his mind. When judgment is coming to the earth, God is not going to change his mind on that. The tribulation is coming. The rapture is coming. God is not changing his mind on all of those things. And even when you get to the point of Lazarus being raised from the dead, or yeah, Lazarus raised from the dead, that Jesus wept when he showed up. Why would he weep if he knew that he was going there and raising him from the dead? There seems to be this conundrum. Uh, a dilemma is two things. A conundrum, you have several things going on there. So we want to provide an answer to this. Some of the questions when God asks like of Adam and Eve, uh, then the Lord God said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 13, what is this you have done? Now, <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to go back on this story here. Adam said, it was the woman you gave me. She's the one that did it when after he asked Adam, what is this you have done? And he says, it's the woman. It's her fault. So he goes to the woman and he says, what is this you have done? When he asked that question, do you think he was not expecting an answer? Or do you think he was asking it and he already knew the answer? He was just doing it for her. And that's one thing that people say. Or did he ask the question and just not know? Or did he ask the question, he knew the answer, and he wrote it down here just to make you think he didn't know? You see, some people do that. They look at this, and this is given in a narrative form. It is what it is. You ever hear that phrase? It doesn't. It is what it is. What is this you have done? When God shows up, turns to Eve and says, what is this you have done? Did she go, you know, Lord. She didn't say that. She gives an explanation. It's as if, why did you do this? He's asking. He didn't have to ask if he just knew, right? What is this you have done? Never mind. I know what you have done. He wouldn't even have to ask the question. Going on in Luke chapter 8, and this we're going to come to as well in Matthew. The woman, she thought, the issue of blood, she thought, if I just touch him, just his garment... I will be healed. So Jesus is walking through this crowd. There's people all over him. They just want to touch Jesus. They're reaching out their hands, and he has his hands probably up. I'm reading a little bit into it, but you get the idea. He was pressed in hard, and his disciples were with him. They were kind of like the bodyguards going, come on, Jesus, and they're cutting away, and they're, they're getting him to where he needs to go, and people are reaching in, and they just want to touch Jesus. And this woman comes in. She goes, I'm going low. And she goes down between the legs, and she grabs the tassels on his garment that is there, and and just touches him. And because of that, virtue went out of him. She got healed because of her faith. And what did Jesus say? Who touched me? Now, did he say that because he didn't know? Or did he say that and he knew and he just brought it to the attention of the disciples? I believe that's reading into the text I believe you're taking way too much liberty if you do that. And that is the common answer. The common refrain is, well, Jesus knew it was just for his disciples. Really? Where does it say that in the text? 
I don't have that in the text. It says, Jesus said, who touched me? And he goes on with emphasis after that. Jesus asked, when they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing around you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, and I know that power has gone out from me. Now, how do you think he said that to Peter? Do you think he turned to Peter? There's people, they're talking, they're loud, they're all around them. And Jesus goes, who touched me? And all the disciples go, wasn't me. And Peter goes, Lord, they see these people all around you, and you're asking who touched you? And Jesus goes, Peter, come on. Somebody touched me. Now tell me who it is. Do you think he did that? He goes, somebody touched me. That's how he did it. I'm sure. Now again, I'm taking a lot of liberty this morning, but I want to give you some context of what's going on. And I'm telling you when I'm doing it so you don't get confused. But this idea, Jesus, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. He didn't know. Now, of course, he didn't know the day of his return as well. And we can get into that scripture. And guess what? It's time. So we're going to cover this next week or next time I'm with you guys. We're going to go in depth in this. I want you guys to be able to have an answer for who Jesus is according to the Bible, not who we make him out to be or who we want him to be because it makes us feel more comfortable. And there are some solid answers for this. And I want you to be able to have it to give a reason for the hope that lies within for those who would ask you, who would say there are conflicts in the Bible, there's contradictions in the Bible. No, there's not contradictions in the Bible. And we can walk steadfastly in the truth and not be worried about that. My prayer for you is that you even go and try to figure this out. You look into the scripture and you go, okay, this is what it actually means. This is how Jesus can be God and also did not know things when he was here. And don't settle for some contrived answer. Try to use the scripture uh, to get there. May God fill you full of wisdom. May he fill you full of his spirit. May you know exactly what to say when given the opportunity to someone when they inquire of Jesus Christ and who he is. May you lead them into the kingdom and may God place into your mind the verses that you need to know to help them. Let's pray. Father, we we look to you for wisdom and insight. Your word has the answers to everything and we know that you are not the author of confusion and you have set out in your word what we are to believe, what words we are to hold to. We would ask, Lord, that you would fill us full of that word which brings the wisdom and give us the ability to carry out those words. But again, Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your grace for when we fail. In Jesus' name.